This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, there's a new chief pilot at the FAA. And Embry-Riddle students score a save. Four flight jacks up its prices. And aviation show season begins with sun and fun. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, David? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombley and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombley. And I'm David Tulitz. David, you are remote. This week, you're away on assignment. I am. One of your yearly shindigs, doing a little bit of photo editing. So you're out of the office this week, but uh, you're joining us on your time off. I am. And I'm uh, at a beautiful site that I can not disclose, but it's in Georgia and it's uh, in Augusta. Okay. And there are. Does it have something to do with grown men and women chasing little white balls around big open grassy areas? Indeed, it does. And we had some exciting golf with the Augusta National Women's Amateur. And we had a drive, chip, and putt championship for young youth folks. Hopefully, we want to get those youth into airplanes one day, Ian. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. And the uh, pro golfers are going to be out on the course pretty soon. But right now, today, it's raining. So if our podcast listeners hear some interference, We're in the middle of some downpours. Okay, okay, cool. So our guest this week, somebody who's very special to both of us, Tom Haynes, our boss, our outgoing head of media at AOPA, the editor-in-chief of AOPA Pilot for many, many years, decades really, the host of AOPA Live. Boy, what else? The associate publisher of the magazine. He's a Bonanza A36 pilot. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of everything. Tom will join us a little later and talk about what? A little bit about his career, how he got started, his favorite airplanes to fly, uh, some of the cool stories he's gotten to do. So definitely stick around for that. Yeah, we quizzed him pretty big time. And I think that Tom releases some, let's say he releases some secrets that have not yet been told. Okay, okay, cool. So starting off, somebody else who's just starting a new life is the FAA chief, Billy Nolan. He is the interim, actually, FAA administrator, replacing outgoing FAA administrator Steve Dixon, who decided to step down. And Nolan is a graduate of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and he was a, a captain for American Airlines, Ian, and he's got some real flight chops. He was a U.S. Army helicopter and airplane pilot and a safety officer, and that is where his expertise lies, and he will be um, bringing that security and safety expertise to that new role at the FAA, even though, like you said, it is an interim role. 
Yeah. So these FAA positions are five-year appointments. There's been all sorts of names that have been kicked around already, but one has not been nominated. So he will take the job for at least a little while, and who knows, maybe be up for the permanent as, as time moves on. We'll see. But for the meantime, uh, Chief of the FAA Administrator Interim will be uh, Billy Nolan. We wish him all the best. Well, speaking of Embry-Riddles, uh, some of the Embry-Riddle Eagles came to the rescue of a downed pilot in Florida. The The Embry-Riddle students were Chris Shields and Connor Civitan. They were out flying a Cessna 150 and practicing for some upcoming flight competitions when they heard a Mayday call over the radio. They did what we would do. They sprang into action. They provided emergency workers with information that pinpointed the downed pilot who remained safe and relatively secure, although there was a large gator in the water. And uh, swimming to the shore was, I guess, not an option in that case. But these two were out doing pattern work near Palatka Municipal Airport when they heard that emergency call over the common traffic advisor frequency. Ian, why don't you pick it up from here? I think the story gets better. Yeah, well, so you touched on my favorite part of this, which is the gator. So the pilot who went down was actually a former airline captain, 81 years old, named Jim Goolsby. And so he went down in this pond. He was apparently trying to make a road or something like that and, and uh, just wasn't able to make it. So ditched in the retention pond. The pilots, they had this great, the riddle pilots, this great quote. They said, when they saw the airplane touch down in the water, my heart sank. So obviously their thought is the airplane could flip, you know, the pilot could drown. What would otherwise be an uneventful emergency force landing? And so they waited around. They stuck around for like three hours circling. They see the pilot. He, he steps up onto the top of the airplane. And as you said, would not swim to shore because there was apparently a gator in the area. And so he was going to take his chances. Not unusual for Florida. Yeah, he was going to take his chances waiting on the airplane. So they, I love this because it's a great training exercise. I mean, not, you know, so crew resource management, right? Absolutely. There were two of them. They were coordinating communications. So they're dividing duties, dividing attention between inside and outside. They're circling. These are real world turns around a point. They're coordinating with emergency services. They coordinated with another pilot who did relief because, of course, they had to monitor their fuel situation. I mean, this is a 152. A 152 with two people aboard, and you're yeah. only looking at about, what, 18 gallons? Right. Yeah. I mean, at, at five gallons an hour, you've, you've got you're, at three hours, you're pretty much running out. Yeah. So the twist to the story, though, is that this is not this pilot's first go around with water landings, water accidents. So Goolsby it turns out you found had a previous force landing. I suppose you'd call it an accident because I think it was a seaplane that maybe overturned in the water. Yeah, back in 2019. That's right. That's right. So he was what, 78 at the time? 79? Seven, 79 years old at the time. And you know, this is someone with, he, he has a ton of flying time, 66 years yeah. as an aviator and an aerobatics performer. Yes. And that time decided to swim to shore. So he had experience evaluating the water for gators, apparently, and decided the first time to swim and not this time. So turns out it's all happy ending. Guy was unhurt. Students had a great training exercise. And like you said, just a really good feel-good story. Absolutely. And a quick tip of the hat to another Embry-Riddle pilot, Stephen Lang. He's a flight team captain. He was, he was the person waiting to take off and assist emergency services after the first two guys got low on fuel. And then the Navy ended up making the rescue via helicopter. Yeah, plucked him off. So, yeah, just a really cool story. Hey, David, 
you're a ForeFlight user. I am. You are going to have to pony up a heck of a lot more money from here on out for ForeFlight. You're right, Ian. The subscriptions are going up at ForeFlight, and they're changing some of the services. So, yeah, now I'm a ForeFlight user. We'll just go ahead and get the... Uh, Get the crux out of the way right now. The basic plus level is now going to be 120 bucks a year, up from 99.99. I'm on the the middle plan, which is now going to be called Pro Plus. It's going up from 199.99 to 240 dollars. And the top of the line Performance Plus is now 360 dollars, going up from 299.99. Basically, 20 percent across the board. But I'll tell you what's cool about it in the middle plan that I'm on, which gives me things like plates and uh, prepares me for instrument work. It, that is now going to include synthetic vision. And that formerly was only in the, the highest option, the performance plus. Okay. All right. So you're getting a little bit more for your money. That's good. Right, right. And there are some other cool things that I have been using lately which helps me look at different different options at altitudes. I've got a terrain profile view with airspace, and I actually use that. That's pretty helpful. And that synthetic vision, that's something I've always wanted to use, but I haven't yet, Ian, so I'm pretty excited about that. But, yeah, I'm going to be paying about 40 50 bucks more. Yeah, it's a little complicated. Basically, they said that AvWeb had a really good synopsis about it, Mark Phelps. He said, basically, when you renew, that's when your price is going to go up, except for legacy basic and performance plans. So apparently before they were just called basic and performance, those will be discontinued and then you have to go to the basic plus or performance plus. So I guess there is no, when we were talking about this, it's like, okay, there's basic plus. Well, what's basic? There is no basic, I guess. It's right. basic plus is the basic. Right, right. And like you said, they're going to offer synthetic vision. I would just like to say Garmin Pilot is still how much is Garmin Pilot? Still a hundred bucks for the basic level. Oh, Ian, you're killing me. Yes. Still 100 bucks and 150 bucks for the upgraded level, which does give you terrain and a bunch of other cool stuff. So I think Garmin Pilot, not only I love for flight, I prefer Pilot, and now it's cheaper. So win-win for me. It is a win for you. And, you know, the thing is for me, I'm a hybrid because I've got a Garmin watch. And that would play very nicely with with the Garmin Pilot, and yet I use ForeFlight. But you know, I'm just used to ForeFlight. I, I got on board early, early on. You know what, Ian? The, the first the first EFB that I had was it was called like Anywhere Map. Do you remember that? Oh, of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had that, and had another one called Fly Gator. I think that was pretty cool. Uh, you I had remember to use the a, name. I never tried it, but yeah, yeah. yeah you had to use a special a special little handheld device. So, so I've been using this stuff for a pretty darn long time, but as far as apps go, you're right. The big ones are a four flight and Garmin, but there are others. Uh, you know, there's, you know, FlyQ and some others as well. Yeah. Wing X and all those. And those mm -hmm. are all cheaper by the right. way. So, yeah. um, yeah, yeah, that's right. I will say the one reason I love pilot is I'm an Android user. I used to use iPhones. I got away from it. I don't really like iPhones anymore. And so with Garmin, I can use the iPad version on the iPad and the Android version on my phone. So I love that. Well, and, and you're used to it. And you um, also now, our podcast listeners might not know, but you told me off the air that you now are a part owner of Aircraft, which has yeah. a, a Garmin 430 in it. So maybe you could sync up that uh, Garmin Pilot app with, with that airplane. That's right. Okay. And we'll be right back. 
And let's move on to show season, which is underway as we record this podcast. And we are talking about sun and fun, but we have other news also. We have some AOPA events for y'all to put on your calendar. So before sun and fun, Ian, can we tell our podcast listeners about a couple of cool events they want to jump on? Yeah, let's talk about uh, AOPA. So as people know, there was fly-ins. And then the pandemic happened, and so we went away from flying a little bit because, you know, nobody got, got together in big numbers like that. Well, now they're back, but they're called Hangouts. And the idea is to, I think, better capture the spirit of the event, which will be more of a Hangout, less of a... Mm, still a show but less of maybe um uh, it's gonna be probably a little bit more laid back and a little bit less yeah. things to do like i know i'm not sure we're gonna have all the workshops and seminars and things like that you know it used to be a lot going on and you had to pick and choose where to go mm-hmm. instead of just hanging out with fellow pilots and listening to some music and then you know flying airplanes which is what it's all about yeah, so first event's actually going to be in the fall. So the fall event, the first one starts September 9th. So it's September 9th and 10th at Feltz Field in Spokane, which we've been to before. Mm-hmm. And then followed by November 4th and 5th at Tampa Exec in Tampa, Florida. And folks who listen to the podcast have probably heard us talk about Tampa Executive in the past. And AOPA really likes that part of the world. I want to say that it's been a number of years, but didn't we have... One of the big shindigs there uh, when it was called Expo or something like that, Ian? Yeah, Tampa, absolutely. That's a beautiful area. It is. Now, listen, it it costs a couple of bucks to go to these events. 20 bucks if you're a member. And by the way, another plug to be an AOPA member. You can uh, just pay $20 instead of 30 bucks for non-members. There's another thing that we want to mention, too, besides the two Hangout events. We're going to be back with an aviator showcase at Fort Worth Alliance Airport in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, that, Ian, is in the summertime, June 16th and 17th. Yes. So, and then the idea with that one, if, if you didn't go to it last year, didn't pay close attention, the showcases are all about buying, right? It's all about going and seeing avionics manufacturers, engines, uh, accessories, airplanes, all in one spot. So you can go, you can get multiple quotes, you can try on headsets, you can do all these things in one place, really consolidated venues, smaller venues, so you can easily get around. Like you said, it's two days. And really for people who are looking to buy, looking to shop, looking to get really immersed in that. So those are great events for that. Absolutely. And I forgot to mention that during not during the Aviator Showcase, but during the Hangouts, there's going to be some STOL stall, high-energy stall oh, competition, yeah. yes. and a lot of other things that will be fun, and plans are still coming together for that. But make your plans now to join us in the fall at either Spokane or in Tampa. Right on. Okay. So how about shows that have already happened? And that is AEA. That was the first one, the Aircraft Electronics Association International. They had their convention a couple weeks ago. AEA is the group that does avionics. So Garmin and Free Flight and all of those get together. They usually make some pretty big announcements. This year, nothing really big. Want to start with AirTex? It was all, I was all about connectivity, as uh, exactly. we were talking about off the air. Yeah, absolutely. So connectivity was the name of the game there. They came out with a new box. It's a $5,000 box, 400 bucks a year for the data, plus text messages at $0.05 cents a piece. That sounds like a lot of money, but it's like a fraction of what it used to be. So that's really good. They've got some other sort of Bluetooth solutions 
Trig Avionics came with a few new pieces. Oh, yeah. You know, they came out with some autopilots a while back that we looked at at, a, at an air venture a couple of years ago yeah. that were pretty cool. In fact, it, I want to say it was set up in a Cessna 172. Yeah. And they're looking at some radios, right? We're looking at some Trig radios. Yep. That might that would give us another option besides Garmin, Legacy King stuff, yeah. some of the Avidine pieces that would actually give us a, a nice option for pilots. And I want to say that uh, I can't remember exactly from the story, but weren't there around four or five thousand dollars? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So Mid Continent had some stuff that came out. They've been really into these like flexible, smaller displays, which is really neat. They've got some cool power solutions. So things like light jets, turboprops. And then there's also a couple of new ELTs. So like I said, nothing sort of groundbreaking there, but it's a really nice jumping off point for Sun and Fun, which is going on as we record this. It is. Sun and Fun is going on right now as we speak, April 5th to the 10th in Lakeland, Florida. And folks who are down there um, right now, of course, will be listening to this after it's over. But if you're there now, we're hoping you got a chance to stop by and talk to the AOPA ambassadors, learned a little bit more about our pilot services, and checked out the AOPA Sweepstakes Tiger, which is on display after being completely repainted with a new interior. And let me tell you, Ian, I've flown that airplane, and it is a sweet airplane to fly, and it is easy to fly. Cool. Yeah, it looks beautiful. I love it. The paint is fantastic. I still think they should have gone with the Tiger Stripes, but, you know, that's just me. I'm no, I'm uh-huh. no designer. No, no designer. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So far, not not big on the announcements, right? I mean, a few. No, but there was a little bit of news out of uh, Son of Fun, just a little bit. And the main news so far to date has been GAMI. And we're talking about hanging tight with that unleaded fuel for big block engines. That's a follow-up, Ian, to the to the Eagle Fuel meeting that we had just a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C. Yep. So uh, there's a little bit of news on the GAMI front, uh, General Aviation Modifications Incorporated. These are the folks that have made a business out of running your aircraft a little bit more lean of peak mm-hmm. if you have a fuel-injected aircraft. A lot of studies, George Braley and crew have done a lot of studies for a long time on how to coax the most speed and efficiency out of your airplane well, with the least amount of fuel and the least amount of money, which is near and dear to most of our hearts. Yeah, that's right. So this is an interesting story. Actually, Tom Haynes wrote it, and... Basically, what it says is that Braley Braley reiterates that the GAMI 100UL fuel does work in all of the engines that is tested, all the data is at the FAA. He's pushing on the FAA, kind of using one office against another, kind of the certification office against headquarters, saying, hey, certification office says it's good to go, let's go. They want that STC for the AML, the approved model list, which will make it uh, easier to put into every airplane out there in the fleet. So they're they're sort of hinting that it's just just on the cusp. I'm not so sure it's on the cusp, but it it does appear to be getting pretty close. Yeah, and I think a little bit of uh, of pushback from George Braley and and his crew might move things ahead a little bit quicker. You know, we're all trying to get to that initiative where there's no lead in fuel. And it's really something that the FAA and the EPA and AOPA and other aviation organizations have been trying to get to for a long time. But we want to reiterate that the aviation fuel has to be safe for all of general aviation, not just a few models. And that's been the hangup. And, and we talked about this last show, and if you remember, 
what if you have an aircraft and you have a certain kind of fuel in it, you're here in the States and say you want to go to Mexico or you, you go to the Bahamas or you go to Canada, you know, that same kind of fuel has to play nice with other fuels that you could fill up with when you go to some of these other countries. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Not a whole lot of other big news. There's a new TBM. I suppose that's pretty cool. They, they're they always trying to upgrade and, and give folks a path to newer airplanes. So the TBM 960 is out and that has, as far as I can tell, it's like an electronic throttle. So sort of FADEC like throttle response, which is important, I think, for that user group. Uh, what else? A couple of other little things, I guess. Well, we got a Bonanza gross weight increase on the G36 model and uh, the addition of a Garmin GI275 electronic standby instrument with more useful load for the aircraft. And you mentioned the DAR, TBM960. What about the flight design? That company is expecting FAA certification of the F2 model. Now, I don't know much about that model, but we've talked about aviation. We've talked about the affordability of aircraft. And I want to say that you might have a little bit more experience with the flight design models. And if you do, let us know what is so cool about that LSA airplane. Yeah. So the idea with that is that it's basically going to be a certified version of a flight design, which will mean you can use it for instrument training and essentially it would be a two-place do-anything sort of trainer. So that, that could be pretty cool. I mean, those are great airplanes. Good deal. And I actually have been looking for airplanes on and off, you know, trying to find a good deal on, on one. And I think you had mentioned this, you had written about this a while back too, that sometimes the light sport aircraft market might be the might be the diamond in the rough as far as, you know, least expensive way to get involved in aviation. And some of the newer models have, you know, up-to-date avionics and they have some nice handling uh, characteristics. And let's face it, how many times are we filling our airplane up with four people anyway? So flight design ha has some pretty interesting options there. And it'd uh, be interesting to see what happens with this FT. Yeah, absolutely. So, David, I think that's about all we have going on, except I'm really excited to bring Tom on, really excited for folks to hear more about his career, and I had a great time chatting with him. Oh, yeah, he was great. You and I both got a chance to interview him at the same time, and yeah. I think we quizzed him pretty good on his favorite aircraft, his least favorite aviation assignment, which I think was a really good story. Mm -hmm. And we're sad to see Tom move on, but I want to say that he has done a great job for AOPA and for all of general aviation, just a tip of the hat to a truly good guy. And, and thank you, Tom, personally from Dave T for rolling the dice and taking a chance on me back in 2015. I really appreciate it. Welcome to a special Hangar Talk, Tom Haynes, AOPA editor-in-chief, the face of AOPA Live this week for many years, and soon to be retired and cruising the country in an <laughs> RV and a Bonanza. Right. So, Tom, I'm going to bring you in. Uh, Ian Twombly is here with us as well. A lot of folks read your column mm -hmm. in this month's AOPA Pilot magazine, and they know that you're on to different adventures. 
So Ian, you got a couple of questions for for Tom, but let me just jump in before you come with, up with your questions. Tom, I'll, I know a little bit about your aviation history, but I don't know that a lot of other people do. You've told us um, how you got started because we've had a couple of events together. But let the podcast listeners know how you started in aviation. Oh, well, great question. I would say not like a lot of other people who end up with pilot certificates in that there's often a family member who's involved in maybe aviation and they have a mentor or something like that to influence them. I had none of that. But I was, you know, grew up in the 60s and 70s when the Apollo program was going crazy and the whole whole country was pivoting on on Apollo and getting to the moon. And so I was just a kid who got enthralled by aviation and astronauts and aerospace. And in the back of my head, I saw myself as an astronaut someday. And a path to that is, you know, learning to fly. And I I expressed some interest with my parents uh, who were very supportive. And my dad got me a flight with a guy he knew who had an airplane. And I was 15. And when we landed, the, the guy who owned the FBO and the flight school said, hey, we got a ground school starting in a in a few weeks you know why don't you take that and i was 15 never been in an airplane before and didn't even know what a ground school was but anyhow i ended up taking the ground school and back in those days you know it was in a classroom uh at night week after week after week there were no online materials and and it was really pretty awful kind of material kind of boring yeah very boring uh, particularly for a 15 year old exactly so anyhow but my dad would drive me in it was in town we lived out in the country and it was in town so rather than driving all the way back home and then coming back to pick me up a few hours later, he just stuck around and took the course too. And then at the end, when we took the test, the written test, which he did, he did better than I did. Oh, I'm sure he never let you forget that. Yes, correct. So that that kind of bummed me out and took a a bunch of uh, wind out of my sail. But anyhow, I got past that. And then I started uh, flying that summer, next summer when I turned 16. And I did solo at 16, got my private at 17, just a few weeks before I graduated from high school. But like a lot of people then, I went to college, had no money, and uh, barely stayed current. You know, just I, when I, whenever I was home, I'd try to get a, you know, even a 30 or 40 minute flight in whenever I had some money. And then ended up with a journalism degree after a fashion and went to work in radio newspapers and, you know, just thought that aviation was going to be, you know, something I did for fun whenever I had some money. But, and this, this is the part that I think is totally fascinating, you, you, know, you talk about fate and happenstance and, you know, pivotal moments in your life where, you know, your entire life could turn one way mm-hmm. or another on some really basic, simple decision. My wife and I, for our second wedding anniversary, drove from northwestern PA, where we both had grown up and, and were living. I was working at a, uh, a local newspaper as a reporter. She was a nurse. Anyhow, we went to Virginia Beach, so pretty good long drive for basically a long weekend for our second wedding anniversary. And coming back up through the, toward the D.C. area on a Sunday, we stopped in Richmond somewhere for, a, you know, a bio break. And I just picked up a Washington Post. Uh-huh. And in those days, we're talking 1980s, the newspaper was the place to advertise jobs. Yeah. And, you know, the, on the Sunday Washington Post was, you know, like four inches thick with uh, a lot of uh, help wanted ads. And so she's driving, I'm in the right seat, and I'm just thumbing through the paper. And I just kind of look at the, the one ads and I just, at a glance, see this one little teeny ad, about three or four sentences, that said, uh, wanted aviation writer, uh, pilot certificate preferred. And for a magazine that I'd never heard of before. 
What was and, the name of that magazine? And that magazine was Professional Pilot Magazine, okay. based out of uh, uh, Alexandria, Virginia, or actually at Washington National Airport, Arlington, as it turned out. Uh, so anyhow, when we get home, I fired off a resume just like, ah, what the heck, you know, we, we, we were young, we had no kids, and yeah. it's like we'd always said, eh, maybe we want to hang out uh, in, a, in an urban area for a while, since we'd both grown up in a very rural area. So uh, I didn't think anything more about it. Thought oh, probably nothing to come of that. And uh, you know, ten days later, I'm sitting at my desk at the newspaper, and the phone rings, and it's the executive editor of Professional Pilot Magazine calling me and saying, uh, "Hey, can we talk?" And so I set up a time later to talk at home, and we had a good conversation. And they invited me down, bought me an airline ticket. So from Pennsylvania from, to DC, right? And that was one of my very first airline flights. I, I had actually never flown in a commercial airline, even though I, at that point, had my private pilot certificate. I had flown once in college, but again, I, I'd flown myself before I'd ever been in a commercial airliner before. But anyhow, so like this was probably my second airline flight or third. Flew to Washington, had the interview, and he actually flew me back the next day to Youngstown, Ohio, which is where I got in the airline flight, in one of their company airplanes, which is a Beechcraft Sierra or Sundowner Sierra. The Sierras are pretty cool, retractable. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah it's first uh, only and maybe the second time I'd ever been in a retractable general aviation airplane. He actually let me fly it a while, and anyhow, so it was it was a good good time, and got the job, and hung out there. Uh, actually, progressed quickly. We, my wife and I, moved to Alexandria in a one bedroom apartment in a high rise. So again, totally different lifestyle than what we'd grown up with. And uh, but we had a great time in exploring D.C. as, you know, young people without a lot of other responsibilities. She got a job and and I had a great time. It was a wonderful opportunity. And I appreciate uh, Murray Smith was the owner and founder of that magazine. He just died uh, about two years ago, less than that. And so I'm grateful for him for giving me uh, the opportunity. And I was there about two and a half years. And then I heard about an opening at AOPA and applied and uh, got uh, the job here. I was executive editor at that smaller publication. I got hired here as an associate editor, and that was uh, April 4th, 1988. And of course, that's how I started as an associate editor, too, Rob. Right. So, but your your love with Beechcraft airplanes must have started on that flight to D.C. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's the first time I'd ever flown in a Beechcraft. That's yeah. awesome. Well, you must have been the 152 era. So you were, of course, post-Cub yeah. and pre-172 in terms of ubiquitous training airplanes. So that was you must have learned in a 152. Yes. 150 and a 152. They, they had both, and I just kind of alternated back and forth. The 150 was one of the old ones that didn't even have a key start. It had a like a little handle, like a parking brake handle almost, uh-huh. that you pulled uh-huh. to start the engine, as I recalled. And uh, the 152 is... You know, pretty suave, and they did had the little rear view mirror in the center of the dash. You know, so you could, in, in theory, see the the runway behind you as you're making sure you're on the center line, which of course was completely useless. But nonetheless, it was there. What was your beat at the newspaper before you even jumped into aviation? When I left, I was covering county uh, politics. I was I'd go to the county courthouse and I was writing about uh, what the county commissioners were doing and and that sort of thing. So that was uh, and uh, county elections, that kind of stuff. And, and folks might not know this, but you told me one time that you ac- actually had to handle in some photojournalism too. You had to support some of your stories with photos. Oh yeah, this was a very small newspaper, and so we did everything. And so yeah, I had I occasionally did sports sports photography or sports reporting. And, and when you did sports reporting, you took the camera with you and you shot your own stuff, you know, black and white in those days on film. 
and bring it back and go in the dark room and process it yourself. So, yeah, we were very much a, a, a one-man band. Yeah. <laughs> You and Ian both have seen a lot of changes at AOPA Pilot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It is totally different from a production standpoint. I suppose people aren't terribly interested in the way that magazines used to be made. Of course, today, it's obviously all digital, but obviously much more efficient these days. But, yeah, you've seen changes that went from AOPA Pilot being sort of a, I mean, it was an important member benefit, but it was it was just one of many things that AOPA did. I think people were members because of the advocacy, probably, to to really media being a big reason and, and the reason a lot of people are, are members and the magazine being a part of that and then obviously expanding to the website and video and everything else. Yeah, I mean, when, when I started, we had a good-sized staff. And however, our only products were AOPA Pilot Magazines 12 times a year. And at that point, our staff produced the airport directory, which is the printed airport directory, which was an annual. And today we have a similar-sized staff putting out uh, pilot 12 times a year, flight training 12 to 13, or eight, eight or nine times a year, if you include the annual. Well, I think 14 different, basically regularly scheduled media properties, email newsletters and um, other other products, plus multi, you know, websites and that sort of thing that we're supporting. So it's a ton of content coming out of pretty similar sized group of people. So that you're right, Ian, the, the efficiency factor is much higher today than it was uh, back in the day. But, you know, it's it has been really interesting to be a part of the media world over these, you know, 34, well, actually closer to 40 years when you count all my time back to the newspaper days, the changes that have occurred. And, you know, I've, I've often said that nothing in our lives has changed more in the last 30 or 40 years than the way we consume information. Mm-hmm. Because it used to be you had your daily newspaper, probably your local radio station, and and television news. And that was it. That was the, you know, if, if you didn't and, you know, then the occasional magazine or that sort of thing. But, you know, those were typically monthly. And then there were some weekly news magazines. But basically, the way you got information was very limited, very limited number of, of streams of information, if you will. And today, I mean, look at us. I mean, every second, you know, you can be looking at your phone or any number of websites and getting email blasts and all kinds of stuff, text messaging and uh, social media and all kinds of video and stuff. Uh, and you can be creating your own. You know, you, you can be the reporter today. So the barriers uh, to getting into any kind of media property and stuff are just much lower than they were before, which is all the more reason that we as media professionals really have to be on our game. We have to be authoritative in our reporting and authentic in what it is that we do and really knowledgeable to set ourselves apart from, you know, some guy who who grabs their iPhone and goes out on the street and uh, claims to be an expert. And the immediacy effect of what we're doing now, it affects pilots, you know, especially when we're doing things like broadcasting TFRs, yep. which is just one of the, the small things that AOPA does. But uh, the news channels that a lot of folks get their news from, from AOPA especially, we, we had a big push for basic med. You're right in the middle of an Eagle aviation unleaded fuel initiative right, right now. Yeah, so that that has turned it all on its head. I mean, it used to be we'd go to an aviation event, uh, you know, Oshkosh or uh, something like that, and when it was just the magazines, and you know, it was pretty leisurely. You know, we'd 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 be busy at press conferences during the day, but then at night you were free to go do whatever, go to all the social events, and and hang out because you knew that ah, you know, you didn't have a magazine deadline for two or three weeks, <laughs> a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, so you'd get home and you'd write up some new stuff and that kind of thing because you know that's that's when your deadline was. And you know, today, as you guys all know, you know, you go to Oshkosh, you go to all the events and the press conferences during the day. And what do you do? You get back to the house 
and and you write all night because yes. uh, the, the web is there hungry as ever. We probably have a special e-pilot in the pipeline. we got to get stuff for them. You're sending photos back. We're sending video back. We're planning the next day's video and, and photography coverage. So, yeah, it is a very different world. It's a lot more work, i got to tell you. I'm, I'm curious. You Obviously, over the years, you've seen hundreds and hundreds of talking about press conferences, airplane announcements and uh, – new technologies and, you know, the rise of GPS and tablets and everything else. So we often sort of joke that it's like, you know, well, this, yeah, this is going to make it, this isn't going to make it, whatever. So what is, looking back, something that you remember being announced and you thought, oh, there's no way they're going to be able to do this. And then just being astounded that it was something that actually came to fruition and, and just completely changed things as far as you were concerned. Well, it'd be easier to answer the other question that I thought you were going to ask is, which ones were that looked promising and then didn't make, make it? it. Yes. That's what I was <laughs> going to ask you. Heck yeah. Uh, so we maybe can get to that. Well, I mean, it, this isn't quite an answer to the question that you ask. However, you know, certainly GPS comes to mind is, is the thing that uh, just came out of nowhere uh, and almost overnight, you know, transformed uh, the way we navigate. But really, I think it's some of the other things that sort of are add-ons to that. I mean, I, I look at in-cockpit weather, for example, as being one of the most influential things that has occurred uh, for general aviation that has impacted the utility of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, GPS navigation, no, no doubt about it, very high on that list. But really, without that weather knowledge, you know, all, you know, close to real-time weather knowledge, you know, the utility of the airplane was still more limited. You know, obviously, we still can't go through a lot of weather, but at least we know where the weather is now. Back when I was got my instrument rating and we were flying, you know, if you had a storm scope, you thought that was just the berries and, and that was pretty limited information. So I think satellite, well, satellite delivered weather, in, in cockpit weather in general, uh, regardless of where it comes from, has been a, a major enhancement to GA safety and utility. What about a product that had high expectations but took a nosedive? <laughs> well, there have been a bunch of those, but... Where to begin? <laughs> how, much, how much time do you have? But the big one, of course, that I think most people would relate to is the whole very light check thing. I mean, that just was so hyped back in the early 2000s. And the idea that you were, you know, obviously Eclipse was the, the primary one, was going to deliver a twin-engine jet flying at 41,000 feet at 260 knots, carrying four or five, maybe six people, all for, you know, $800,000, eight or $900,000. It was just astounding. And, and everybody bought into it, you know, including me. I, I, I really thought they'd get there. You know, maybe I was a little skeptical on the price. But, uh, you know, and in the end, they, they really did get there, just not for that price. It's just because it, the eclipses that got produced did meet all that. You know, I've flown them at 41,000 feet. They really do 260, 265. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll carry four people easily. And the people who, who have kept them really have found them to be great airplanes. But the hype was unbelievable with the amount of money that was spent uh, on various VLJ projects from, you know, Cessna, Eclipse, obviously, Piper. Diamond, and then there are a bunch of them that kind of came about and went away quickly that I can't even remember their names, but it was everywhere, and uh, everybody, a lot of people at least, you know, really had bought into it, and and unfortunately just didn't pan out. So obvious parallels there with eVTOL, yeah. I think in terms of hype and, and investments, I don't know. I think the VLJ mark, it's like to me, it wasn't that it wasn't successful; it just matured. Right. So yeah. it was never going to be what they thought it was going to be, which is city to city and, you know, paying $100 a ticket and that sort of thing. But Eclipse made it. Cirrus made it with the jet. 
you could argue that some of the lighter citations are sort of in that world, and yeah, maybe sure. even the, the Honda Jet. Yeah, yeah, the, the Mustang, the Honda Jet, which you've flown several times. Yeah, yeah. Stories. Yeah, so you could see a similar situation happening with EV tolls. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we we said for a long time, and the LSA world's the same way. We said, oh, there's got to be a, you know a paring down of these companies. There's got to be consolidation, that sort of thing, and and it happened, and it is happening in the in the LSA market still. And it's going to happen in the eVTOL market. There's just no way that the industry can support that many companies that are out there with something north of 250 companies developing aircraft for that market right now. But I think the difference is with the VTOL world is the size of the investment and the the companies that are backing it. When you've got companies like Toyota and Rolls-Royce and Boeing and, and now Textron and you know, pretty much every company that you can name has a footprint involvement, Airbus, in some way right. in the eVTOL world. Some of them are just you know, development programs like Airbus had, and they've kind of stepped back a little bit now. But it's really big companies are making big investments here. So I think something really is going to come of this. I don't think it's going to be as big as most people are saying it is, but it's, it's going to happen. But I think we are a long ways, though, from the autonomous part. Interestingly, that's, that's the most difficult thing that people originally hyped was autonomous flight carrying passengers. And I do think that is quite a ways over the horizon. Do you think that's because of the public perception of the safety of it or just sort of getting over that hurdle that I'm in a, an aircraft with no pilot on board? Uh, yeah, I do. I think technically it's, it's probably more you know, feasible than, than the marketplace would be to accept it. You know, I think the idea of a pilotless aircraft carrying people um, I think there's just a, a long ways to go with that. Looking at the crystal ball for a second and talk to me a little bit about electric motor technology, electric aircraft technology, and when are we going to really see viable examples of that, either in the GA world or commercially? Yeah, I think fully electric training aircraft, I think there's a place for that, and I'll bet we're going to see it in the next five years. I mean, so it's already happening. Pipistrelle, mm-hmm. uh, they've got a, the uh, airplane that they've got approved in Europe, and it's out there training today. They've got the Alpha Electra, which they were trying to get in, into the United States, and they just the FAA just can't, can't buy into it, or they just haven't gotten the regulations to accept it. By Aerospace, obviously, with their little two-place airplane, I think has an opportunity. You know, they, they've also produced, you know, kind of a lot of this pie-in-the-sky stuff with much bigger airplanes that are pure electric, and I don't know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll get there someday. But I think at the training market, there's a place for a fully electric airplane. I think it's it can be practical. However, I think anything much more than that, we are a long ways away from pure electric. I, but I do believe there's a hybrid solution out there of, you know, basically electric propulsion that is, you know, maybe has some battery assist and that sort of thing, but it is uh, really driven by some sort of onboard engine, motor, well, no, engine, that is burning fuels, fossil fuels of some sort probably, and providing the electric power that drives the electric motors. Because the electric motors, without a doubt, are more efficient than any of the gasoline-burning engines or turbine engines that we have out there today. Maybe a gasoline, uh, some type of fuel-burning engine to get to cruise altitude and then maybe having the electric motor pitch in for a little while. Yeah. Or they're both working together in the cruise phase, and then in cruise, the the mo- the engine is is providing power to recharge batteries and that sort of thing so that you can then have a quieter approach and basically come gliding back in at, you know, with a uh, uh, much quieter uh, airplane or something the like Toyota that. Toyota so. Priuses of the air. Yeah. 
Hey, I got a uh, FAA question. First, I want to say uh, it was a real kick in the pants to do a story with you at last year's EAA Air Venture. We were covering the Loda, and uh, that and Steve Dixon, uh, the FAA administrator, who's is uh, soon to be retiring had one of the most famous quotes of all time. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, Loda is a, a four-letter word. Right. But I enjoyed teaming up with you on that story. I just want to say thanks for that. But what changes have you seen in the FAA since you've been involved in aviation? Certainly, they were more hardcore, you know, spanky on the butt uh, years ago, whereas now it seems a little bit more touchy-feely. Well, we certainly went through that phase, as you described. However, it does feel like there are certain parts of the FAA that it's the pendulum is swinging back the other way. You know, the FAA is uh, really weighing in a lot in on, you know, what gray charter, if you will. But even it's leaked over from anything cl even close to Part 135, which is the normal charter regulations, into getting closer and closer into the Part 91, where a lot of the things that we've all done for years of – you know, uh, flying our friends around, you know, just for fun and that sort of thing. All of a sudden, it feels like the FAA is starting to pay attention to that and somehow trying to make a case where, you know, that is like some sort of charter happening, which, of course, is ridiculous and, and is not at all the interpretation that anybody's had for 40 years. So I do worry about that. The FAA has definitely become more aggressive in that area. I mean, if you, if you look at the regulations, you know, just stack the, the federal aviation regulations, you know, uh, from, say, uh, 1985 next to the ones for 2022, and the one from 22 will be much higher stack. You know, the, it's, uh, the regulations are much more complex. Airspace regulations and all that sort of thing are – there's much more to them. And so it's – you know, flying has become more complicated, no doubt about it. Oshkosh actually brings up a point of one of your first assignments, which was, uh, I think, a dream for any pilot, anybody who's an aviation lover. You got to arrive in style. Was it your, your first Oshkosh? Yep. <laughs> yeah, actually, my first Sun and Fun. Let me give you the first Sun and Fun. I, I'd been, I started it April 4th. Sun and Fun, you know, back in 1988 was also in April. And I showed up like in my second week, maybe my first week. They said, "Hey, next you're, you're going to you're going to Sun and Fun," and they stuck me on one of the OPA's uh, company airplanes, and I flew to Sun and Fun and, and covered the show by myself. The new guy uh, as the only editorial person Ouch. there. <laughs> so that was my first big GA show, at least uh, on the light side. I'd been going to NBAA and that sort of thing when I was a pro pilot. But yeah, so Ian, I, you're right. My first trip to Oshkosh was on the Concorde. And it was a, oh my goodness! It was a fascinating trip, and our you know our editor at the time, Richard Collins, who by the way started four days before I did uh, here at AOPA. He had bu a buddy who was flying the Concorde for British Airways in to go on display at Oshkosh, and they were bringing a load of people over from England, and uh, they stopped in New York to clear customs and get fuel, and then they were going on to Oshkosh, and for whatever reason, somebody, some one person, got off the air was getting off the airplane in New York and not going on to Oshkosh, and Richard. Heard about that from his buddy, uh, who was the pilot, and so they had this one seat, and he came to me, and uh, he said, uh, "Hey, you want to go to uh, Air Venture?" Or, well, again, it was Oshkosh in those days. Air Venture didn't come up later. Oshkosh, on the Concorde. Like, well, how do you say no to that? You know, that took about a nanosecond. So anyway, I went to New York, got to hang out in the Concorde Lounge at Kennedy, which was way cool. And they had all these neat uh, accoutrements. You got, you know, this little packet of stuff with. Uh, you know, matchbook and in a little writing pad and all this stuff, which I still have, by the way. And uh, got to ride the Concorde, uh, every seat full. 
and uh, realize how tiny that airplane was on oh. the inside. It seats 100 people. The windows are very small. It's about you know half the size of a notebook. And you know, it's very tight. That you couldn't use the restroom for the first part of the flight because it was the stacked floor to ceiling with champagne cases of champagne. <laughs> Oh, that's so you had to terrible. <laughs> so you had to uh, wait till you got to altitude. Then they would take the champagne out and free up the restroom so you could actually use it. But you know, we got to go up front and and see the cockpit while we were in flight. Uh, there's that amazing expansion joint right behind the cockpit that you know, as they as you speed up and the airframe gets hot, it expands. And there's actually an expansion joint built into the fuselage. You know, you can see that. You know, kind of at least they point it out to you. But we can only go like there's a big uh, digital meter on the kind of the bulkhead of the cabin telling you what your speed is and we only got up to like i don't know mach 9 6 or something like that because we were over land mm -hmm. uh, on that leg and we couldn't go uh supersonic but then we then we came screaming into air venture and god the pilots were loving this 100 people on board and they did i don't know, like three full afterburner low passes down the runway in oh, front of so hundreds cool. of thousands of people oh, i love that and uh, it, for the passengers, loved it, of course, because we were all pilots and aviation geeks. And he was racking that thing around like crazy, and, and uh, it, was, it was so much fun. And then we landed, and they taxied us to what is now Boeing Square. And they had cordoned off an area uh, you know, for the airplane. They brought the air stairs out, and, um, and we stepped off the airplane, and there were like 100,000 people just you know, staring up at, up, uh, up at us with their mouths open, and, you know, I, I felt like the queen getting off, uh, in, you know, the, the big queen wave to all these sea of people. Uh. And, and I got off, you know, went down the air stairs and went under the rope, you know, just to, to, to go. And I was, like, accosted by people. Oh, what was it like? You know, did you have a great time? Tell me all about it. You know, strangers just, you sure. know, they're so fascinated by this yeah. beautiful airplane. So it was, it was a hoot. That's arriving in style, <laughs> I would say. That's kind of hard to top. So... Thinking back in all these different events you've covered, I would imagine that would rank high up there. What's your favorite event? Well, yeah, that was that was fun. I mean, Oshkosh's air venture now, you know, is 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 always a who. It's a great time to catch up with people and you know get to experience aviation twenty four seven for a week. I got to say though, one of the most memorable trips that I ever did. I mean, there have been a bunch. I mean, it's everything from being by myself in an airplane early in the morning, take off from Frederick here and, and be had I remember one in particular going up to across Pennsylvania up to New England somewhere. I don't remember where I was going, but early in the morning and it was, you know, a little bit of mist on the ground and there's ponds and and just, you know, feeling you know, incredible the the ability to get in this airplane and just go somewhere and experience this, you know, by yourself on a beautiful morning and that sort of thing. So there's lots of those kind of memories, but you know, one of the one of the big ones for sure was was our trip to Africa. I was invited to speak at the at the IAOPA World Assembly which was happening in Cape Town. Uh, the AOPAs around the world, there's now 70 almost 80 of them. They meet every 2 years in the World Assembly and so this was one of those meetings and I was invited to speak. So I went over and uh, then afterwards, my wife and I had arranged to do a, 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 safari, a flying safari, basically, in southern Africa, South, South, Amer uh, South Africa, and to Botswana and Zambia. And John and Martha King of King Schools also were, we, we got to talking with them, and we kind of planned this thing together. So we uh, flew to Johannesburg, and the, you know, the two of us got checked out in two different 182s organized by this uh, company. And then 
the two airplanes, the two couples set off on this amazing trip that we did in about seven days, really about a week. We covered all this territory that you could not have covered in any other means of transportation in and out of these backcountry strips and seeing the animals on these, go to these lodges that are, were, were spectacular out in the middle of nowhere. Sure. And uh, they put us in these uh, Toyota Land Cruisers and take us off for the, to see these animals and Anyhow, it was it was the most memorable trip we've ever done, and it was you know done only in a, in a way that only general aviation could do it. So I mean, you can go there and, and you know, they'll put you in a caravan and they'll fly around, but you're not going to see as many places as we did in a week. And and so in the you know, helicopter, same thing with helicopter. Even it was uh, just amazing for us to be able to do that. Cessna 182 in Africa. Yep, safaris. Seeing the animals from just a couple hundred feet above them on the planes, that must have been just phenomenal. Yeah, it really was. Totally memorable. What about your least favorite event that you've covered? Put your thinking cap on. What really nosedived or something that you had high expectations <laughs> for? Now, you know, you can tell us now. Okay. Yeah, I think the, I think the statute of, of uh, limitations on this one has, has, has passed. I was flying one time with a guy when Vortex generators were coming out. And you know, that was a big thing that, you know, you'd install these vortex generations on the top of the wing and the, and the tail and that sort of thing. And you could, particularly on twins, you could lower the stall speed below VMC, which was a great safety improvement. Sure. So uh, it was really a big thing. There were several companies producing at the time. And uh, this guy brought a Cessna uh, 414, I think it was, something, uh, twin Cessna to Frederick to demonstrate this. And I had the sense, even at that tender age, that this guy was a bit of a hot dog. Mm. And so I had a very clear discussion with him that we were going to take off normally on two engines and we were going to climb to altitude and then we we're going to go through some demonstrations about what this uh, the Vortex generators would do from taming the stall in a single engine situation with a, with a light twin. So, you know, we, we were all clear on that. And so we take off and we get to a couple hundred feet and what does the guy do but reach over and pull the right engine and, and and the airplane handled it fine and that sort of thing. But I put the power back in, and we turned around and, and went headed back to the airport. He says, oh, where are we going? And I said, we're going back to the airport. This ride is over. And anyhow, that was it. I landed, got out of the airplane, and we were done. I never want to piss you off, so that, <laughs> I don't want to be there. That's a, that's a good story. I like it. That was the least favorite event. event. Uh, I mean, you know, that, something like that could put your life in danger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it was frustrating that we had totally briefed it, and he ignored it. Yeah, so completely. So favorite airplane. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to choose, and you can't choose your own. So favorite airplane oh. you've flown for a story. That's a good question. Uh, there have been so many, more than 100. But, you know, I guess uh mentioned the 182 a few minutes ago. I guess I obviously love the Bonanza uh, that I've owned for 20-some years. Uh, one or another, but I think the 182 is just a great airplane. I've flown them when Cessna first came out with them again in um, 1996, 97, when they went back into production, went and flew the new ones and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's just such a great all-around airplane. It does so many things so well. We were talking about this uh, just the other night about, you know, how you can land a 182 slower than you can land a 172 if you do it right and get in and out of shorter strips, even though that, sure. that doesn't seem to make sense. The bigger, heavier airplane, you know, shouldn't be able to do that, but you can. And, you know, it hauls a good load. And anyhow, I just have always admired the 182. And if I can't fly a Bonanza, that probably is where I'd end up as in a 182. And, you know, where, I, where I'm going to go is going to be next. Uh, the next question, <laughs> how about your least favorite airplane? <laughs> a 414 with VGs. 
Uh, yeah, there you yeah, go. With, on on one engine. Um, have there been some really squirrely airplanes that you've flown for reviews, pilot reviews, things like that, that you really were, you got out and you're, you're thinking, never again? Well, one that, you know, it's probably, it was my level of experience, but I, that I found just so different. I mean, at the end of the day, thanks to FA certification, by the way, the, you know, most of the airplanes we fly are, are really a lot alike, okay. you know? I mean, they all have their subtle differences and that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, it flies like an airplane, uh, no matter which ones you get in. However... I will tell you that the Pezzatel Welga, which is a, a Polish airplane with a with a you know Eastern Bloc radial engines with the propeller turning the wrong way, was certainly the most unusual airplane that I've ever flown. And again, this was way back early in my time here, but uh, went down. The guy was importing them and selling them down in South Carolina or someplace, and invited me down. So we had a photographer and went down and and flew the airplane. And it's got an air start system in it, so it's not not electric start. So you have a you know compressed air turning the propeller instead of electricity to get it started. And you better hope it starts before you run out of compressed air, because right. then you're totally screwed. Some Russian airplanes start that way. Exactly, okay. they do. And and there's reasons for it. You know the way they places they fly and that sort of thing. It makes sense, but uh, it's it's certainly unusual for us. And the propeller turning the wrong way on a radial engine tailwheel airplane, it's got really unusual construction. It's had sling canvas seats, and we landed in a bean field. I mean, it's a total, very capable airplane, so I'm not really dissing the airplane. I'm just saying how unusual it was for me as a spam can guy right. flying this uh, really unusual airplane. So it was very memorable that uh, it's it got a big stick, you know, amazing you big stick that you move all over the place to get it to do anything. So that's certainly one of the more unusual airplanes and memorable for that reason. Is that reason. the one that kind of looks like a grasshopper? It does, yeah. It sort of looks like, it looks like the, the box it came in. The one that um, I think Mike Patey started out with with that. Exactly. Went yeah. crazy with it. Your favorite airport? Oh, uh, well, again, there have been so many. You know, Frederick here has become home after 35, 34 years flying here. Sure. So, I mean, and it is a great airport. Um, you know, it's we have a tower now, which we didn't have when I started flying here, and good approaches and and uh, obviously, when our, our headquarters is right here on the airport, and so my hangar is, you know, 90 seconds from my office. So that's pretty convenient. That's a, a wonderful thing. You know, but it's always, you know, the, the, I think the airport where we learn to fly always has a special place in the hearts of pilots, right? Right, right, right. So for me, that is Greenville, Pennsylvania, for Golf One. You know, it's a quiet a little airport, quieter now even than when I learned to fly in the 70s. But, uh, you know, I love going back there. They've lengthened the runway since I was there. But they've got a beautiful grass crossing runway, which actually when I soloed, soloed on the grass because that's just the way the wind was favoring that day. But that's it's still in great shape. So I do love going back there. It gets a little nostalgic going back to that place and looking around and realizing the impact that that place had on me and my career. That, that would be a favorite airport. That yeah. sounds great with a grass field especially. Yeah. A lot of fun. So, Tom, I think the most important question is, so your last day is, uh, what, first week of April, April 9th, something like that? Yeah, right. So, what are you going to do on April 10th? Going camping. Nice. Yep. RV camping or airplane camping? RV camping. Yeah, we uh, we bought a motorhome uh, just before COVID, and uh, which turned out to be a really great thing because during COVID, everybody was- Because it would have been double the price, yeah. <laughs> right. Everybody was wanting one. I could sell it now for a lot more money. I paid for it. Anyhow, it turned, it's been great. We have good friends who are also camper. They, they have a pull behind- and um, so anyhow, we, we've been camping a lot and totally enjoying it. My wife totally got into it, which surprised me. 
And so we've enjoyed it uh, very much, and we wanted, we're going to do more of that. So we actually do. It, it kind of happenstance. We didn't exactly plan it this way. But, uh, yeah, on the, my last day is Saturday the 9th, and on Sunday morning we get in the motorhome and head out to a camping trip in West Virginia, actually. And, you know, looking forward to that, to just take a few days off to just decompress. But then I want to get back into it, and, you know, I want to do some charitable flying. Mm-hmm. And maybe my leadership skills or whatever I might have developed here could be useful to some charitable organizations, particularly some aviation charitable organizations. There's some companies, aviation companies I've been talking to, who just they're looking for some help. You know, I'm not looking for a full-time job at all, but uh, there are some opportunities to maybe help out some companies. And of course, I'm going to continue to work, do some work for AOP on a contract basis, at least to the end of 22. So uh, I'm going to do some writing and uh, just other consulting. And and then I hope to continue providing content from time to time to AOPA even beyond uh, 22. When I've got something to say, Colin has said, uh, uh, maybe, maybe he'll entertain something from me. So, uh, we'll see. Send in the pitch like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, Right. right. Yeah. It goes to the bottom of the stack. I know how that goes. Yes. Well, you know, I just, I guess it's been an amazing time for me. It's hard to believe it's been 34 years at AOPA, and, it, and it's been wonderful. I mean, it's been unbelievable that, you know, like I said, that pivotal moment when I read that newspaper ad is took took my life in an entirely different direction, and it's totally immersed in aviation, and um, and it has been wonderful. The people, I've met so many great people around the world, flown so many wonderful airplanes to incredible places on, uh, you know, I've flown GA airplanes on Five continents, been to six and almost seven. Yeah, last <laughs> so close. You'll, That's you'll, another story. You'll, get that. you'll bag it. Yeah, we'll get it. Get there maybe later this year. Uh, you know, I've been to all fifty states. I've flown GA airplanes in forty-eight states. Hawaii is the one that I need to go back to. That's the obvious one. Somehow, South Dakota of all places. I've been to South Dakota a bunch of times, but I've never landed a GA airplane there, so I haven't counted that one yet. But so anyhow, I just got to do these amazing things that um, you know a kid from rural northwestern Pennsylvania normally just doesn't get to do. And so I'm I'm very grateful for all the people who took chances on me. You know, people like Murray Smith, as I already said, Richard Collins, Phil Boyer, Tom Horn, who is the guy who actually hired me at AOPA. Uh, strangely, uh, he was in, kind of an interim editor before Richard started. So, so many people have given me, um, you know, a fair shake, and so I, I appreciate all all those people who have uh, helped me out along the way. And so, anyhow, uh, I guess the final word is uh, thank you to all those folks, and I look forward to uh, a whole lot more adventures. Great. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I know, like David said, we wouldn't be here without you, and many people feel that way around uh, AOPA, and I know many people feel like. I, you have these close friendships all around the uh, the industry, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the shows as a as a participant rather than a contributor in the future. <laughs> I will actually look forward to that. You know, as I said to somebody just recently, it'd be fun to just put on a regular T-shirt without anybody's logo on it and go uh, go hang around the air the air shows and uh, and and look around. So uh, that'll that'll be fun. Well, you earned it, and thanks again for sharing some time with us. I feel like I know you a little bit better after this conversation. Oh, thanks, David. Yeah, good luck, you guys. David, one thing we didn't talk about, you know, he's he mentioned the Concorde story, which of course is a big one, being able to fly on that very early in your career. 
He also, if you recall, when you walk into his office, he has pictures of another very special airplane on his wall, Air Force One. And we didn't even talk about that. But yeah, he, he got to do a whole uh, Air Force One familiarization tour. That would have been awesome. Back in the day when I worked for United Press International, the uh, f- photojournalists that were on board Air Force One would smuggle out booklets of matches to us, you know, to the <laughs> folks who would handle their film is back yeah. in the film days. And yeah. they, you know, just a cool logo and everything. But, you know, Air Force One is a signal of America. It's a big-time symbol of America. There are two new Air Force Ones being built as we speak. Oh, that's true. That's true. But that's a great story. I'd like to hear more about Air Force One. We're going to have to corner Tom uh, with a a adult beverage or something. Maybe when he's uh, touring with the RV, he can tell us a little bit bit more about it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right, David, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.